0: Hi guys, welcome to Break the Glass Ceiling. I'm Joel DeFontaine. Um, This podcast is about helping people of colour and marginalised groups to get information and resources by going directly to people who can help access that information and guide them in the right direction In sometimes things that they don't know about, whether it's to do with policing, housing, uh, safety, uh, mental health, work, education. There's all these amazing people that we'll be speaking to who can actually give you guidance and assist everyone on those things so obviously this subject is about affordable housing Um, and we are joined by Tim Cutts, Akhil and Rajay who are all experts in their field and have a lot to say as well so we're going to go through the whole subject of um, affordable housing with them and we've got loads of questions it's obviously a free-for-all, so everybody can actually talk. So if you want to ask something or you want to speak about something, don't feel like, um that's not on the question. So uh, moving on, we'll actually just be like, yeah, let's talk about it, have it out and go through it. So I want to start saying something just about like affordable housing in general. I personally feel like affordable housing is really interesting. I just feel like affordable housing is a funny word for me because I'm kind of like, like affordable housing. Like it's a weird term. But for me, it has the idea of it doesn't make a sense if there's gentrification going around in the area and you're trying to you change everything, then there's no hope for affordable housing. Cause I'm like, there's been the area has been changed so much and all these buildings come in. So makes me feel kind of like, oh, it's for only for people who can afford stuff, obviously, it's because it's affordable. But all the other people have been moved to Kent or wherever they've gone. Yeah when was you thinking about making these houses that are now there affordable like because if you were why did you need to move all the people out in the first place so I want to go and ask some of these questions and open it to the floor so um, Akil has his hand up so I'll let you answer the first question actually I don't, I don't even yeah.
1: think it was the first question I think from what it was just a thought mm. it's just that when I think about Elephant and Castle mm. and I think in about Haygate, mm. and I like Elephant and Castle come in New York but I think I remember Haygate back in 2009 mm. when like it was me and my friends drinking on the parking. I'm not saying we were doing the right thing, but I, when I think about that and all the estates there and I think, hold oh, no, on, wait, where do all these thousands of people go? And then yeah. I look at it in this 2021 and I'm like, rah, this is a whole new place. This ain't made for me no more. And you see Sayer Street or wherever it is and it's got all the like boutique independent shops and stores and they're trying to make a community out of it and they're trying to make it a little, a little elephant castle village. I'm like, wow. But do that? People from 2009 get to enjoy this, Mm-mm. and it's been 10 years. So I guess, and I guess not. And I think even if there was a holding pattern of what you do with the people and you move them out to bring them back, that takes serious thought and design. But nonetheless, it just makes me feel a type of way.
0: Yeah, I feel like that. Elephant Castle for me is that is the one that I see a lot of, like, um, because they move very fast. As soon as I saw a pret I knew something was up. I was like, oh my god mo across the road from elephant Castle shopping center what for and then slowly that preemo and the housing unit thing next to it became the thing that was getting people to go move into all these other spaces around xY and Z and now it is completely different yeah like the estate I, I, the thing I always say is that I'm all for regeneration but I don't feel like you need to regenerate the people like you just need to regenerate the area to make it give it more accessibility for the people that are there as well but i feel like elephant castle has just regenerated the whole everyone like there's no people there anymore now so when you go through you look at all these places you're like oh my god they're lovely and, um, and, and they look nice but there's none of the people there anymore and so that ties into with um affordable housing and and what is affordable housing and who is it for is it regeneration
1: or gentrification let's start with that question first I know I was asking Tim about it before we were discussing, because I was like, how do you design zoning and planning for that? But I think if we understand, if it's regeneration or gentrification, then we can understand affordable to who? Because if it's regeneration, right, it's like, right, I'm regenerating, but I'm regenerating for the community that live here. And so what I'm going to design and put here is going to serve those community groups in who they are today, but also who they have the potential to be tomorrow where we talk about it as gentrification is, yeah, I'm changing up the area and I'm putting some nice things in place and it will be affordable, but it'll be affordable to that person who lives in the city, makes 80K a year, has gone to university, that's not reflective of this community that's here today. And that's a, different, that's a different game. I also think allocations of these buildings are not, and this is not very political and housing is political, but I feel like the allocations on these buildings are wild. So you're gonna tear down an estate that was all community housing and people had right to buy, yeah I get it, but it was all community housing and now you're going to put up this New York type tower that looks like expensive living and they're going to say, oh yeah, only 10 of these flats in this block and I'm over generalising that statement and I'm over, and I am over, I'm overextreming it but then you're going to say, oh 10 of those flats are commercial housing but the rest of the 100 are not, like it just doesn't, there's a real imbalance between what was there previously and what was there today. And there's a real imbalance in how we decided to do these things. And I just don't, it's not that like that doesn't sit well with me. You see the impacts of it, you see the effects of it. I don't think it resonates well with the community.
2: Um, Joel, can I, shall I come in there just from yeah. the um, council's perspective on, on, on a, you know, uh, what we, what we think is affordable housing? Uh, and I think, I mean, you're right. It is a subject which is really confusing to people because you read in the press lots and lots of different definitions of affordable housing and the government might have a definition and it, people are, People aren't. it is confusing. Um, within Southwark, our definition of affordable housing is published uh, in our planning policy documents. So in the new Southwark plan um, and in other, other planning documents that we have. Uh, and we say that affordable housing is a social rented housing. Um, so that's housing where the rent uh, is below or within the, the government rent caps uh, for uh, affordable housing and or social housing and usually that's provided either by the council so there was a council home uh, or by um, a housing association. Um, and within new developments we say that at least 25% of new homes um, should be should be social rented. And just to give you an indication of what that means in terms of rent, um, if you're in a social rented home, uh, the, the figures I've got here from from March 2020, but you would be paying around 103 pounds a, uh, a, one a week for a one-bed flat, about 119 pounds a week for a, a two-bed flat, and 135 pounds a week for a three-bed flat. And they're allocated as well on the on the basis of need. So, to access a social rented house, you you have to be on the council's uh, housing waiting list, uh, and you'll be allocated homes according to uh, according to your, your your level of need so essentially um uh, social rented housing is is for the people who are who are most in need and as i say that that's the kind of emphasis within our, our policy saying that at least 25% of homes should be social rented and and then on top of that as well we also say that um 10% would be we call it intermediate housing and it, it's the kind of housing that is provided for um key workers typically so people working in the police um, teachers, uh, pe- people working in, in the NHS, ambulance drivers, and so forth. Um, and that's, that's a slightly different model. That's generally, it can be shared ownership. So where if you're buying a house or a flat, you own a portion of it, and then the housing association might own a portion of it too. Um, so that's, that, that's so sh- and again, there are, um, that that's based on the, the, the level of um, rent and the, the mortgage that you might pay is based on your, your income. So that shared ownership house, uh, if, if it's a one bed flat, for example, um, that should be available for people on, on incomes up, up to 50,000. So households on incomes up, up to 50,000. And, and that, that's a kind of shared ownership model. There's also another model called London living rent. Uh, again, the, 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 the rents there are set by the by the GLA. And again, that's kind of targeted Um, at at key workers Um, so that's that's kind of what we mean by um, affordable housing there are other definitions you read in the press you know 80 percent of market rent but in Southwark we say that that's not affordable so affordable is either social rented um, or it or it's the the kind of intermediate housing I've been talking about in terms of who is it for um, we are doing much better at it um, now so I mean the area that I work in is the old Kent Road Um, And you've probably seen that there's lots and lots of uh, building that's starting to happen now in the Old Kent Road. Um, We've got about there are about 1,700 homes under construction at the moment in the Old Kent Road and and 40 percent of those uh, are affordable. So that's that's four in 10 of them uh, are within that affordable bracket. So either either social rented um, or um, uh, or or, or intermediate. And they are I mean, in, in terms of kind of meeting needs. Uh, what we have done in the Old Kent Road is look at, you know, how many households uh, are on our waiting list uh, to look then at the social housing kind of delivery in that context. Because, of course, you know, these the people that we're building homes for, um, you know, this isn't a kind of an abstract thing, a theoretical thing. This is this is real people, uh, real, real, real households. So if you look, for example, in the Old Kent Road and uh, the areas just around the Old Kent Road, uh, we've got. Kind of 935 people on the waiting list uh, who are looking for a one-bedroom flat. Uh, and we've got we've got 171 one-bed flats, social rented flats, which are under construction at the moment. So that's about kind of uh, 18% of, of the need. Um, but we're always thinking about yeah, who are who who's going to be living in these flats because you know these are real real people. And we've got what we've got to be doing is trying to meet the needs uh, of our communities.
0: So, do you think that that's something that their summit council are like would implement to like roll out on all of the projects that they do going
2: forward absolutely and the way that, that that we would um uh kind of approach um an estate kind of rebuild um has changed you know very very dramatically i think over the over the last kind of 10 years or so um i've been working on two Um, State rebuild projects in the Old Kent Road. So one of them is the the Tustin estate uh, and the other one is is the Ledbury estate. Uh, And the starting point on both of those is that the kind of impetus for change and that kind of direction has got to come from the residents um, themselves. Um, And ultimately um, there is a ballot. So in both the Ledbury estate and the Tustin estate, we've we've held a ballot um, with residents because it's important that, you know, there is a majority of residents uh, who, who want to go through this process. Um, and in terms of outcomes, I mean, I, I, you know, the bottom line is that, that all of the social rented housing on the estate uh, would, would, would be reprovided. So everyone who's on the estate uh, will have the opportunity um, to stay there. In addition to that, obviously, you, you've probably seen in the press as well that the council has uh, an ambition of building 11,000 new council homes. Uh, and a lot of those new homes are going to be on estate rebuilds too. So in both the Tustin oh, Estate and the Ledbury Estate, as well as kind of re-providing what's there at the moment, uh, there'll be a lot new, a lot of new um, council homes on on those too. And the way that we, I suppose, approach that rebuild again has has changed. So in certainly on the um, on the Tustin Estate, what we'll be looking at is a is a phased uh, kind of rebuilding of the estate, so that. People in the first phase um, may have to move off off the estate and they they will have a right to return. But thereafter, uh, we build one phase at a time and so we can move people around the estate so that you only have to move once and so that uh, in most cases, you don't have to move off the estate. And that's the way that we've been approaching it. In both the case of the Leadbury and Tustin, there were very, very large majorities in favour of that process of rebuilding the estate, provided, of course, that the council does reprovide for the people that are there, that people don't have to move, most people don't have to move off this state, and that we're building a lot more council homes too.
0: Do you find that this um this process like being different to what they were doing before, is it is it more positive, like in terms of obviously because they want to make money as well. So I just want to be real, like they're not like just moving people around like Mary Poppins and something just for fun. But they obviously want to make money as well. But does this actually um benefit the council as well as benefit the community. So now they've realised, ah, oh, rah, we can actually do this good thing and it, it actually helps everyone. And it also, selflessly, it makes us look like we're doing the right thing finally as well.
2: I mean, I think, I mean, the council for starters is, isn't, isn't looking to make money out of these. The council doesn't make money. In fact, we can only do these, these kinds of things with the support of the GLA uh, and with grant funding, for example, that comes from the, the, the GLA and the government. But I think it goes... It, go, it ultimately it goes back to the residents and our discussions with the residents. And it, you know, in both the Tustin estate and the library Estate, you know, it's got to come from the residents. I, I did a lot of work early on with, with people on the, uh, on the Tustin estate talking about how they felt about the estate at the moment, the kind of the good things that were on the estate, uh, the things that people didn't like so much. And, and, mm. and, and that, was, that was the starting point. Um, but it's, it's something that, that's got to come from the, from the local community. And I think, I mean, we are very conscious now of the fact that, you know, regeneration has got to be in the context of what are the benefits uh, for mm. the local community. This isn't about setting up nice kind of shiny new ho- neighbourhoods where, you know, new people are going to come into. This is about how can we, you know, make, make it a better place uh, for our, you know, existing communities. And around the okay. Oakham Road, that's people living in the area. It's also people working in the area or kind of going to school in the area, for example.
0: No, no, that makes sense. Um, Raj, you've got your hand up. You want to say something?
3: Yes, I, I really do. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I will just lower my hand. Um, thanks for sharing that, Tim. It was very helpful to hear, and that gave us, I think, a lot of clarity about um really what the strategy is and how these policies have been set out and what their purpose is. Um what I'm interested to know is what informs these ideas and how how what are the processes for ensuring that they're fulfilled in their purpose also. So for example, you explained the terms quite clearly to us there um, to differentiate the different groups um, that need accessibility to these homes. Um, but one of the things I know is that it's extremely difficult to access this information because if you go onto Southwark Council's website, these things are not made clear. And in um, talking to residents, um, on, so for example, I, I live on the Eglesbury estate and I talk to people in my community um, and people just do not understand even the very basics of what the council's policies are to rehouse. There's a lot of fear because wherever there's there's a lack of information. There's confusion. Where there's confusion, there's going to be fear and mistrust. If you try to go ahead and find out, and you you send an email, I I've never received a response to an email, and I know that many of the residents also don't have the answers that they're looking for. Um, I've also been part of meetings with some of uh, your colleagues that would be in the housing department. And I, I'm really interested to know the policies that are set in place by the regeneration team and, and you know, people like you doing a great job looking at how, how planning fits into that. How does that then work with the housing department? Because ultimately they make the decisions based on assessments. They take in the information from, from people. Where are those um, policies being, you know, when you when it's two teams coming together, where's the follow up? Do you know that those things are actually being implemented in the way that they were created to do so by, by, for example, your department or your team? Because what I'm seeing is a real um, innovative way of working within the um, regeneration and planning teams. And I know that from the work that I've been doing on the Peckham Square project. Um, A lot of great intentions, but I also know from um, dealing, dealing with the housing department that actually there's still a very old school mentality there. Um, and some of the statements that I've heard being made from that team really contradict any kind of ino- innovative ways that, and this, and I would class some of the things that I've heard amongst that department. Not expecting you to answer for them, but important for this discussion, important for actually helping the communities that you're saying need to lead what happens, to empower them to do it. We have to overcome some of the um, almost institutionalised ways of. Of people within Southwark Council dealing with residents particularly social housing residents and we need to start overcoming that that manner of talking to people as if we're doing you a favor and you should really just be grateful that you've got a roof over your head because unfortunately that's what I'm hearing and that's what I'm seeing um the other thing that you mentioned was about talking to people on on the estates that you're 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 working on and and that's so important and I'm glad that you've done that but I also want to talk about how um, as somebody who's an ethnic minority myself I know that if somebody comes to engage with me who I know will understand my experience if I'm vulnerable and I share what I've gone through or what my family are experiencing I'm a lot more likely to talk to somebody who I feel will understand and so I wonder in the teams that go out and do the work so, for example, I went out and I headed the community engagement for Peckham Square and I went out as a woman of Indian heritage talking to other people and I heard stories and experiences and, and I, when they came to me, I had a context for those stories, I had a context for those experiences because I was able to relate. However, um, you know, if I didn't have that, some of the stories that I received, I wouldn't have been able to translate them appropriately to like in, in my case for example you know the project officers and managers that I work with within Southern Council there is a translation that has to take place of information on both sides so some of the policies that you've given they sound they're so exciting yeah. it's hard to sit still in my seat because I think yeah that's wonderful but if they're not being translated to the community in the right way or the community's feedback is not being translated back to you and your team in the right way we're, we're not going to really get the maximum benefit and so I'm really interested in us bringing to the table um how how we're going to get the integration of of policy and practice practice and and praxis you know theory and praxis and i hope that over the course of this discussion this is something we that we're able to address so those were some of my thoughts as you were as you were speaking so thanks for letting me share
2: it was really interesting uh rajay i mean i think kind of two things i think that would be really good to talk about there i mean one of them is is, is our relationship with, with the housing department. So I, yeah, I work across the kind of planning and, and, and regeneration divisions. Um, on, I mean, certainly my experience in the, in the Tustin estate uh, is that we work very, very closely uh, with colleagues in housing. So we're effectively one team. Um, the, the, I suppose the, in terms of what's kind of driving our assessment of, of need. One of the first things that we did on the Tustin estate is is an assessment of of housing need. Uh, And that means going around and knocking on every door on the estate to talk to people. So we've had a team of people on the Tustin estate who have knocked on every door on on the estate to talk to people um, to try to answer their questions, to try to kind of understand what their aspirations are uh, for their estate, for their home, for, for, for their community so so that has to be the that that has to be the start of it actually just talking to people yeah we can do surveys and we can do um you know uh, online surveys and things like that but you can only pick up a certain number of people a certain proportion of people doing that you know that it, it's got to go right down to door knocking uh, and and talking to people face to face because that's when you start to kind of build up relationships and start to kind of understand the, the these things in more depth i mean i mean in terms of the, the diversity of our teams um, it's some you know we are looking to diversify as a council to make sure that as a council and our workforce does uh, reflect um the community that we're working in and we're also thinking as well about the people that that are working for us so for example i've i've been working on a couple of big projects on the old kent road one of them is around well they're, they're both on land that the council owns um so one of them is the it's a PC World site on the corner of Old Kent Road and St. James's Road. Don't know if you know that site, but we, we bought it a couple of years ago and we bought it in order to provide new council homes and to provide new kind of uh, workspace. But when we were, when we were thinking about um, who we might commission to do this, uh, to kind of design the development, I suppose one of the things that was, we were conscious of, that um, it needs the, the team that we pick, needs to be reflective uh, of of, of people in Southwark. And all too often in in the past, I suppose, the council has gone to, you know, a large, you know, architect or designer, for example, that would have designed schemes kind of all over London and all over the country. Uh, But that's great, but we wanted to do something differently here. And we also wanted to, thinking about the kind of diversity of uh, people working within kind of built environment professions. So, thinking about how can we encourage you know more people from black and Asian minority and ethnic backgrounds to get into architecture, to get into design, to get into construction. So one of the things that we did on um, PC World was that we said we wanted a collaboration. So we wanted to see kind of local SMEs and ideally SMEs which are so small, you know, small businesses and ideally small businesses which which are owned or which are you know significantly kind of owned by but by, by yeah, people from Black and Asian minority ethnic, ethnic communities. And on that side, we, we have done that. We've got, we've got a really nice combination of uh, practices working there. And I think that's, you know, the, 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 the kind of reception that those teams have had then when they go out and start talking to people uh, has been very different, I think, from, from the way that's happened in the past. Um, so, no, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's important to think about, you know, who, who are we employing? And, and, and who is going out to talk to people. And the more diverse we make it, generally we find people can respond more positively um, to those teams.
3: Yeah, thanks for that, Tim, because, um, you know, I so you mentioned, you know, you are essentially one big team. So I, I know from having um, some people come and knock on my door, um, and ask about our experiences Um, one of them said to me and I quote her um that she uh she wouldn't she wouldn't want to live on my estate and she wouldn't want to raise a family on my estate so with the most respect to him if those are the kind of people that you've got going out and knocking on the door when they talk to people who live on an estate you're probably not going to get the best uh dialogue and the best relationship being built up and that's not to that's not to downplay what you what all of the good work that's been that's been done but this is the reality of what happens on the ground and i think that until that is addressed until there's a very careful way of bridging the gap so People who I would class as frontline workers that are employed by Southwark Council or at least are instructed by Southwark Council, who then go to talk to the community. There has to, you know, they have to be very carefully recruited. They have to be trained also. I think in going to bridge gaps because there's, there's there are real gaps and there's real animosity that exists and there's and there's mistrust and to to address that and overcome it, it's going to take um, really good dialogue. I think. That's what I think heals communities is when there's good dialogue, um, and there's openness and there's honesty, and and both and anybody who needs to is willing to put their hand up and say oh, we didn't do that in the best way, and it and the onus is certainly on on the local borough in this case to say if these things have happened historically and now we're sorry. So what can we do going forward? And I think it's it's really important to to just really get to the difficulties and the hard things that are happening every day in terms of relationship between, um, between the community, between constituents of, of, of Southwark Council and people who work for Southwark Council. And I think um, we're not going to be able to go forward without those things being ad- addressed. It, you know, that's the nitty gritty and that's the hard part. Because I guess the hardest part is actual human beings dealing with each other. So my hope is that even, you know, this conversation that we're having today starts moving towards that.
2: Now, I would agree with that. entirely. I would, actually, I would love to, want to, want to,
1: to make you. an interjection because the reason why Southwark hires me a lot of the time is to do some, is to do work around this community engagement thing. How do we engage the communities to participate in these op- new opportunities that we have to do something different? and. Personally, I want to say it's actually quite refreshing to hear what you've had to say to him. Forty percent of social housing in particular groups putting up a building, eleven thousand social homes. Got you're addressing ten percent of your single housing or 18, 10 to twenty percent of your single housing market in one building. I think that's respectable, and so it's great to see changes. But even in um, Raja's point of view, I think this is where community engagement in the process is absolutely essential. And to Raja's point. of view, like I understand you had team members go out and speak to the community but have you decided to do something different where you said you know what I'm going to not just engage but I'm going to partner with the community to build something new, I'm going to have them participate and I will facilitate it but we'll have them participate in the process from day to day to make these decisions I think if you take an individual like Rajay and people and outgoing outgoing members like that, and you really invite them to be doing the door. You, you educate them on what's the right things and the and the point and the topic at hand, and then you send them to go talk to their own communities. I think that's a more powerful way of breaking down the barriers and navigating the conversations and. That's what Subek has asked me to facilitate again and again, or strategize to facilitate again and again in different situations and contexts. But I think it's I think it's a valid thing here, and I think it's valid when we talk about homes that moving forward, you lot have said nice things and you've been and you've had great reflective practice. But to really get to that sweet spot of I'm building for the people we love that we serve, is can you get them to participate in the whole process? And I think that's an interesting thing I'd love to maybe discuss or. We'll put a pin in it. I don't know um, if Jay's got any questions for us, but...
0: Yeah, like, I think I'll put a pin in it because it's something that um Russia, that that is actually leads into the actual questions. Um, uh, it's where you were saying about the woman who was saying, oh, I wouldn't raise my kids in this, in, in this area and stuff. And one of the questions is, like, these are, this is one of the negative stigmas attached to affordable houses. And how true are they? Or... How do we get? Re- how do how is Summit Council utilizing their resources to eradicate these negative stigmas? Because obviously, having people working with you who have them isn't really eradicating these um, those stigmas around affordable housing. So, I guess it's like an open question to people: like these these stigmas around affordable housing, how true are they, and how do we go around um, dismantling them?
2: I think, I mean, from there are there are various things that we would do through planning. Um, Joel, the first yeah. thing is to make sure that when you when you look at homes and when you look at their appearance, there is no difference between, for example, a social rented home or a privately owned home or, you know, a, a shared ownership home. So we we call that um, tenure blind, and it just means that if you look at something, you won't be able to tell. Um, yeah, what tenure uh, it is. And that's really important so that, you know, if you're on an estate, nobody feels that their home is of a worse quality than, than, than someone else's. Um, so everything has to be, you know, of, uh, of good quality. And, and that applies, you know, not, not just to the appearance of buildings, but also to the actual quality of the home. So, you know, looking at um, the space standards, so have you got rooms and, and, and flats Houses which are which are you know meet minimum sizes and hopefully exceed those. Have you got good levels of ventilation? Have you got good access to you know balconies, terraces, uh, amenity spaces? So making sure that everyone's got 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 access to um, good outside space. Um, So it's so it's looking about looking at that kind of quality um, across you know across the development and saying that all tenures should be able to uh, you know should have the same quality and making sure that everyone has got access to common facilities as well so if there is a garden or a communal area making sure that everyone in the development can access can access that so there isn't a division between kind of private tenants or private resident uh, you know people in private homes and uh, uh, and social rented tenants that, that's one of the things and I suppose it's thinking about you know how in, in the design of homes uh, and the way developments are designed you know where are those those places that people come together and in which kind of you know build communities and that's thinking about you know it might be the kind of garden spaces or amenity spaces it might be in the kind of uh, you know some of the commercial spaces so if there's a cafe for example thinking about local shops um, thinking about how people move around the area so is it an area you know thinking about it kind of at the scale of the old kent road are we creating places which are going to be really easy for people to walk around in for mm-hmm. cycle around in where you're not going to need a car where you're able to get a bus easily so thinking about those kind of interactions and how we can kind of foster that kind of community building through through regeneration and planning
1: I, i think that's crazy interesting right but i've got a challenge so i was doing some work with i think gloucester grove um and their tenant management association i was helping them um, design out ways that they could engage their community to do a community led housing project and this informed me so much about what we're talking about what um, my perspective what I'm talking about today but even in listening to what you said I understand that it's progressive to want to reduce the amount of cars on the road or it's progressive to want to be greener or whatever whatever but what I've always found is these these mandates, not mandates these things for the greater good of humanity always cost the marginalised community the most. And so, when we're talking about even going green and reducing the amount of car spread, it's like, hold up, but wait, but these are probably the people that are doing your Amazon deliveries. These are the, probably the people that are in those types of employment where they need to drive every day. These are, and you might call them key workers, or you might call them whatever um, term or phrase we use to identify the hidden work within the society. But like, those are the people you're going to be affecting when you do that. And my question is, what does the accommodation look like for understanding that big shifts in society affect marginalized communities the most? Because we're at a real crossroads here that we haven't been at in a very, very, very long time. And now we're having a great opportunity to do so many new things differently. And as you can as you described him, we most definitely are, but like as an instigator of trouble, my question to you lot is. What, and it's not even trouble. It's instigation of my, as an instigator of inclusion. My question is: What are you looking? What you, What's being done for those people? How are we identifying and creating infrastructure and lived experience and, and livable homes to support those people? Because otherwise, it's just it's more of the same. And I, to be practical, because I think I've talked around the point. My example is: My there was a, we had a resident that was a part of the discussion. And he was like, yo, I drive every day for work. Every day. But yet still, you've removed all the parking outside my house. You're encouraging me to take a bus and I have to park three streets down the road and pay exorbitant for parking on the road fees and that I can just about afford. Because you've just taken away the car park space outside my house. And it's, it's, it seems small, it does. It seems trivial, it does. But this is someone's life and livelihood, and someone you're paying rent. And so I just want to understand how we accommodate for situations like that, which don't fit the macro trends of well, the but do
2: impact the small people. No, you, I mean, you're right, akil I mean, parking is always a, a kind of controversial issue. I suppose what, what we need to do is kind of balance, you know, people's needs and, and what they would like to do with kind of other considerations. And I suppose chiefly at the moment, that's climate emergency and the fact that we've got to try to um, reduce uh, carbon emissions it's also a fact I suppose that in London you know the, the population is growing and somehow we've got to try to um, reduce uh, reduce congestion uh, and reduce poor air quality because cars obviously you know they're, they're polluting too but I think you know we understand obviously that you can't you can't just reduce car parking on its own you've got to deliver lots of other things which are going to support local communities and that's for example you know is there a really good school that I can walk to uh, or cycle to with my kids are there very good parks locally so that I don't have to get in my car to go to a park? There's a park that's you know just down the road that I can walk to. Um, how how do I get to work? You know, is there a good bus network? Are there kind of safe cycle lanes, for example, so that if I live on the Old Kent Road, I can cycle down to Peckham, or I can cycle up into uh, into central London. So it's kind of it's it's looking at all of that. It's not just taking away car parking spaces, but it's thinking about the infrastructure that that, that people. You know, that, that people rely on. Are there shops around that I can that I can use, that I can walk to? Are there good supermarkets? I mean, one of the things that we found most consistently in consultation on the Old Kent Road is that people tell us that, um, you know, the, the Old Kent Road itself, the, the kind of supermarkets are pretty scruffy. There's a lot of wasted space in the car parks. But actually, people do value the supermarkets, and they value shops like B&Q because they use them. So it's how yeah. can we kind of retain the supermarkets? How can we retain... Shops at like B and Q or like Pets at Home, which are already popular locally and people are uh, and people are using. So we don't want to kind of push that kind of stuff out. We've got to try and keep that stuff because that's the kind of stuff that people are relying on uh, locally. So basically,
0: like tying it back to the affordable like housing aspect of it as well, is the areas become super gentrified. So I'll use an example here, like Elephant Castle. Like from what you were saying, Tim about making um how uh the negative stigmas how to get rid of those negative stigmas and by making things look like um tenure blind making things look the same is this something that they will do like after places are done or during because in elephant castle there are houses that are across the road from other ones these houses council houses because one you can tell because they have all the bins outside so they have all the green bins the other side there's no bins um they have all their windows are open you know they have no blinds no nothing this how you know these people have no idea which area they're in because i'm kind of like you have no blinds you have nothing this creates already uh, also from that point onwards around as well those space areas that are like places to see it and places to do stuff there's met- Metropolitan but it's all the people that are going there are all the people that have been moved in no one in the community is going to these places like from i had my studio there the people would go there because it was just there they would never go there otherwise because they're not part of it and they're like this area doesn't feel like i don't go there because i feel like i don't even want to sit down there because you sit down and see people sitting down Reading books and stuff, reading, um, I don't know what they're reading, Shakespeare, or whatever, but it just makes you feel like I'm not supposed to be here. If kids want to go around in that area, they would never be in that area anymore. So they take away stuff, but then make it difficult for the people who are already there to continue to, to, um, thrive and kind of just be and exist and whatever so like you were saying they take away those areas where they're like oh it's making it green so everyone can cycle and stuff but then the people who need that stuff can't work anymore so, so it's kind of it's kind of like does it i feel like the council need to this is why
1: this is why i was always asking for this is my very very first question before we got into quote unquote affordable housing who's it mm-hmm. for and is this regener is this regeneration or gentrification that like it Gentrification can also be. You can also do gentrification through microaggressions, and the microaggression might be I'm removing your car parking space, and so I'm removing your car parking space, even though you drive to work and now you can't. Now you have to park three streets away. As far as I'm concerned, you think that's the big system coming to bite you, and you, this thing's all meant to be nice, but you've actually just made my life two times as hard. Like, yeah. and if we can identify what's what, or if not even identify what's what, again, I'll go back to communities being included and participating and partnering in the process of development not just engagement and it's not just, and I want to move away from consultation to really collaboration and stuff like that because when it's consultation I've done it and I'm telling you I'm doing it when it's collaboration when it's partnership when it's engagement when it's more than that it's I get to push back and I'm not breaking your plans by pushing back I'm just telling you, giving you feedback. And I'm helping, and I'm trying to help you reimagine this space that so is more suitable for me and my community. And I think that's a different. It sounds a very, it sounds like a very subtle shift, but I think that can yield quite, quite astounding results, especially on scales like the one we're talking about, if that makes any sense. And mm-hmm. until we can identify these things about what's going to cause the problem and what's not going to cause the problem. We're stuck almost, so I say we start, but I say we start and change the day and maybe who we're talking to in the process and I understand you're talking about choosing the right architects and so on and so forth, but then you might be met with the commercial problem of a tiny architecture firm might not be big enough to take on all that work for that period of time and so how do you navigate, how do you get the best of both worlds my opinion on getting the best of both of us to create these spaces for affordable housing I know we haven't spoken about the affordability of it directly as such but we're talking about more the things that the factors that impact it is what does it take and how much additional funding or what process do I need do we need to adopt to really get the community in the room on decision day um, and I think that's a real it's a real powerful question for me anyway
2: mm. I mean, yeah, Akhil, I mean, thinking about the way that we engage um, with communities in it, not just kind of consulting people, but actually kind of in that process of development uh, is, you know, is an interesting issue. And I'm sure that there's tons of potential here for improvement and for, for change. I think we, we have started that. So, for example, again, in one of the projects um, that I was in in the old Kent Road. Not only did we talk about the kinds of practices in, we wanted to be within the design team, but then we also got a, uh, a local group called the Southern Young Advisors to help us actually kind of procure that uh, and commission that team so they were part of the interview panel. Uh, they, we didn't kind of restrict them or say what questions they, they could or couldn't ask. They could ask any questions that they wanted. And these young people kind of between the ages of 16 and, uh, and about 24 just kind of living locally around Old Kent Road and Peckham. But we, we kind of gave them a, you know, gave them an opportunity to be part of that process, which not only then kind of brings some community involvement into the start of that process, but it's also really good for the young people involved because it gives them confidence and it helps kind of build, build, build skills. Uh, I'm working on another, another project in, um, uh, over at Bramcock Park, uh, which is just near uh, to, uh, Verney Road and Ilderton Road. And again, what we're really going to be really interested in there is involving residents in actually uh, choosing a design team and then obviously kind of co-designing that space with, with whoever we select. So you're right. I mean, there's tons of I mean, there's tons of opportunity for the council to kind of improve in the way that the way that it's actually involving communities kind of in, in the process and not just kind of talking to them or asking them what they think about it. And we're at, I believe we're at the start of that, that
1: next quote unquote frontier because look you've got the data back, you've heard 10 years off of complaints, you've now got 40% housing being built um, in, in, in up and coming buildings, great, I'm, I'm not even being sarcastic, I think that is great, um, but now I think your next frontier is exactly that, like, and even when you're doing that, it's fun that you've got kids involved because kids are the future and by the time these things are built they'll probably be young adults and so on and so forth. And I appreciate that. But I'm also I also challenge you, and I say challenge, because I understand these are future works, but I also challenge you to hear voices that you don't usually hear. What's the voice of that person who's disabled whose life is now different? What's the person what's the voice of the person who doesn't have immigration status? What's the voice of the person who because there's a, a lot of people that don't have immigration status living in the borough we're talking about. Um, what's the voice of the person who is elderly and is going to be even more elderly by the time this thing is finished? What's, what's the voices of those people? Because I feel like those are the people that participate less in council activity. Those are the people that participate less in, um, what's the word, central organisation type activities. And I think those are the people we really need to hear. What about the people that don't speak English as a first language? I just think Southwark is predominantly more minority groups than white. Like, all those things are so present and so real. I just don't think we... I feel like there's a um, lot of stuff in there
0: that is <laughs> kind of like to to digest. <laughs> to, to I don't think we're going to get any of that in this I'm one sorry. now. But... Um, uh, Ra- uh, Raja, you've got the hand up to say something as well.
3: Yeah, thank you. I think, you know, um, this is, it's so vital to address that um, actually we're talking about affordable housing. Well, a lot of the people that need to have affordable housing or any of the other subcategories within that, that Tim shared earlier based on needs and need assessments. One of the reasons sometimes people find themselves in those places is because they may have a learning disability they may have care and support needs and and therefore um you know when we talk about accessibility um and you know you mentioned about the cl- climate emergency and um and i just want to address that because actually it's People's mental health and people's um, care and support needs, whether they're physical or mental, they are an emergency also. And so, when we start um, suddenly making roads that have got, you know, the um, the is it the LTNs that you know block off roads, um, and when we decide that we're not going to have uh, any traffic on certain roads, we're having a direct impact on people's well-being so if you are a wheelchair user for example and suddenly um, your taxi can no longer come onto your road to drop you out of your home to drop you outside of your home what do you do because some people are independent and can use their wheelchairs some people rely on somebody else helping them so for example my my, i've got a sister and she's got very severe cerebral palsy she's got a specialized wheelchair it's very big so We can't just, she can't just go into any car or onto the bus, we have to have, we have to call a special cab that comes for her, we need it to come right outside of the house because she's frightened of the outside world so she can have panic attacks if she's waiting outside too long or even if we had to bring her down one or two roads, if we were parked two or three roads away. Um, she, she just wouldn't be able to cope and so whilst yes it is really important that we don't bring down pollution that's affecting people's health and well-being there's very real needs now that also need to be acknowledged and I think quite often it is people with disabilities that are the most marginalised um, and there's wider issues around that you know about disability awareness in society um, but for local authority and for planning these things have surely have to be at the forefront of how, how we address the wider issues of of housing and then within that meeting needs wider needs for people's physical and mental um, it's not even well-being at the first it's physical and mental survival and then it goes into well-being so I think it's just important to share that
0: no I like that information I feel like that's something that I've only now started to really notice happening um, like, not noticed, but I've seen that it's getting to the point where people don't know what to do and where to go places, In especially around here in my area in Kennington. All the roads are just closed, and I haven't, I literally, like, I don't know why these roads are closed. I don't know, they don't say anything so, to no, anyone.
1: No, this right? is great. Then, you, they you don't tell happen. anyone
0: anything, and people are like, I can't get to, I have meetings sometimes where I have work to do and I have to get a taxi, or they're like, and then they're like, you can't get a taxi, or I have to go to the airport. That nothing comes here and that's just me and I'm I'm able-bodied, no, so you know, that's
1: not do anything. That's not just you, right? So this sure. thing, low traffic neighbourhoods, is something that they have implemented all across London without any consultation engaged or with any communities. And it's divided communities because some people love it and some people hate it. But then other people are doing this gaslighting thing where they're also on the internet um gassing people and saying that they're the wrong things. Anyway, point being, this has marginalized, so many groups, but even if it's against your human rights and they've proved it's against your human rights some like some community members have taken the council, some certain councils, the courts, and it's proved it's breached your human rights. They've said, because it's for the greater good, we're gonna breach your human rights anyway. And that usually happens to the marginalized community. So I live on a road in Lambeth and uh, the southern part of the road is the more affluent part and the buttons closest to the park and so on and so forth. And oh. the northern part of the road is the poorer part. And my house is slap bang in the middle, but I could tell you they've locked off my road. The affluent people now don't have cars coming down, but the poor people do. And, I think that's crazy, but access, in terms of access, there's loads of people on my street with disability needs that now can't get the support they need. Their carers don't come to care for them anymore for the extra 15-20 minutes. If it's a, if it's a, if it was only a half hour stop to just deliver this person a meal, check if they're fine, and check if they're taking their medication, and that's taking 20 minutes out of their slot just to get to them, they're not getting care anymore, I promise you. And, it's stuff, it's implementations like that. Implementations that, I guess this is not housing, but this is an example of lived, built environment and how the selection, the choices we make upon built environment are so important. When you do stuff like that, when you make implementations like that, you genuinely turn up someone's whole life upside down. I don't think the people, and um, all people do is just look at net effect. And the net effect is really, just displacing traffic to somewhere else. The traffic hasn't well. just evaporated it's literally just been displaced to somewhere else, to someone else's street. And now someone else's street's got double the traffic your street has. And, and mm. you have got zero. Like, it's just, decision-making like that is terrible. I'm saying. I think I think
0: that's part better. of, like, the, oh, Raj, you've got your hand up here. Yeah? Go on.
3: Thank you. Yeah, I just want to say also, to go back to, we talked a lot about consultation, community consultation. um, And my experience, particularly, again, going back to the Peckham Square project is that, yeah, there are a lot of people that will come forward and say, "What, what we care about is climate change, we care about the climate emergency. When I, those are people predominantly white middle class people that are very good at engagement they know exactly what to do before we'd mm-hmm. ask them to come to us they were already emailing us to let us know that they mm-hmm. had a view on exactly what we do with peckham square But when i was going out and doing the part of a community engagement that to me is real community engagement when i actually go out into the community rather than expecting people to come and see me at the office or come to a consultation zoom um when i was going out and i was talking to people in schools and churches and mosques and just people who have got market stalls. That was not coming at the top of the list. And the reason that's important to share today is because, it, you know, you do consultation and you say everybody was able to contrib- contribute. There's lots of barriers that stop people from being able to contribute. And therefore, your figures and your data is skewed because you're hearing from people who are very good at understanding systems. They know what their civic voice is. They know what their rights are in this country and in their borough. And then there's lots of people who don't have that privilege. And if you actually start then getting their opinion, you'll start to see that a climate Emergency doesn't necessarily come as high as first data would would indicate, because some people, with all due respect, don't have the luxury of looking on that macro level. It's not because they don't care about the environment; it's because they're dealing with real day to day needs where they're mm. wondering if they're going to survive. To get, you know, how do we get to the shop to get some food? Or if you're a carer and someone's entirely um, reliant on you, and you're an unpaid carer, we know there are millions, if not probably more than that in this country of people who would be classed as unpaid carers and you don't so your focus is always on all the things you need to keep yourself and the person you care about surviving and you don't necessarily get to look at wider issues and then so you don't always get to partake in consultation you don't always get to have a voice in um, engagement you haven't got 15-20 minutes to an online survey and I think that again then the onus comes onto the local borough to say what are we going to do to hear those people's voices before we start making decisions about about planning and about affordable housing and, and landscape very I,
1: things. And I really don't think it okay. is a one size fits all. It's not a magic bullet. It's not a silver bullet. It's genuinely these, every, these community groups are different. And from what I've learned, engaging is about different different folks with different strokes. Like you genuinely have to choose different methods of engagement to reach different types of people. And that's okay. But now we know what do we want to do. And I think that's where I'm at with this. Um, I typed it in the chat, but I understand this is on record. So I was just like, I'm sorry, I'm not directly speaking on the topic of affordable housing, but i really, really, really do believe we need to get it right into identifying who we're supporting and who we're housing, right? Tim, you suggested that there's 900 people on that one bed housing list. Right Out of that 900 people, how many have your group spoken to? And this is not to call you out. This is genuinely out of curiosity. And are they even a part of the, this engagement consultation process as you go and do it? And what does that look like? I'm sure people
2: would love to know. Uh, just to um, yeah, pick up on a few few of the points there, um, uh, Akita and Raji, I mean, you're absolutely right that we need to be better at kind of understanding how we're impacting on different groups when we are making decisions like low traffic neighbourhoods. Um, of course, you know, we, I'm sure we can be better at that and we, we, we need to be better at that. Um, and I, but I think you're also right, Akhil, that um, there isn't often the fact that different people have got quite strong views on this reflects the fact that there isn't really a kind of a right and a wrong way of doing it. Um, and part of the council's role is to try to mediate between these various views. I mean, I've been working on a, um, uh, another project uh, down close to the old Kent Road um, on uh, a, an area which is mainly industrial at the moment. So it's mainly industrial, but there are a lot of churches there too, um, operating at the weekend. Uh, there's a mosque uh, and there are some, some people living there. But one of the um, decisions that we made right early on is that when we're talking to people about this, we need to do it at a time and a place that's gonna be convenient for them. So we set up our consultation events you know, during weekdays for businesses and on a Friday afternoon with the mosque and then on Sundays as well uh, for, uh, for the church because it's, you know, I think Roger's right, you you got to go to – you can't just expect people to come to you. You've got to go oh, out wow. and, and, and talk to people. But I think one of the interesting things that came out of that, talking to different groups, churches, businesses, people living there, was that everyone had a slightly different view of the, the kind of the public realm, so the streets – and the way that we should kind of prioritize what what happens in the streets so there were, you know some people thought there should be more space for parking for example some people thought there should be more space for loading and unloading the, the businesses some people thought there should be more space for planting and for kind of pocket pocket park little gardens and and kind of greening and i, I suppose it just demonstrates that yeah there isn't a, a kind of you know a right and a wrong way of doing it somehow you know you've got to try the council's got to try to kind of manage those those various views as it as it moves through that process but i think you're right Akil that the, the start of it has got to be at least what people think about it and how different different ideas will impact on on, on those groups it's not i don't think this
1: is about what's the word there's not one size fits all. I don't think this conversation is about finding the right answer to solve the problem because it's a it's a layered problem and there's complexity to it. What I'm just saying is let's not do insanity about the same thing again and again and again and let's take the new opportunities that we have present here today with the pan like the pandemic was terrible for a lot of people, but it's project pro- proposed new opportunity and how we engage them. Um, the new opportunities of you learning from years and years of data and regeneration to do what you've done today like it's just a new opportunity as far as i'm concerned i don't want to miss this one when it comes down to making the right thing for the right people because i think the world is disenfranchised from the same old crap and i just don't think that's we don't need any more of it um i, I feel that. like
0: overall lots of the things that have even Going off off subjects and stuff, it all comes back to this kind of question. Anyways, like, what should be the public offering from these large scale kind of like um, developments and stuff? Like seeing loads of things in the designs and stuff, and how it can help the community and the, the public, um, the in the local community. I I I think personally, it needs to always just go back to helping those people because i think that the people that are coming in are going to use it anyway they're going to do stuff anyway they're not going to be like i'm not using that because it's not f- it's for the local community they're still going to this is just what people do they like to take so they'll take anyway so if but if you make it for the local community or you make the offerings a lot of offerings for them work um business opportunities uh educational opportunities then they will thrive at the same time as the other people coming in will be using the product from them and i think you'll get a bit of more cohesive kind of like union rather than being like let's just create this super cool space that doesn't really have any um local community kind of aspects to it but it looks nice and the people who are coming in will be like this looks cute and it will never get used for its intended purposes and it's just another wasted um thing so what do you guys feel like should be the offerings that they do on the any large scale
2: kind of like developments? Should I kick off there? Yeah go oh. ahead yeah. Uh, I mean it's a it's a it's a great question and um it's it's a really live issue in one particular place on the old road where we're trying to um get a new park built and it's a park that's going to link Burgess Park and, um, uh, and the okay. old coat Road and it's in a, it's in a site which is basically new development um, but the challenge is of course yeah how do you how do we ensure that, that local people can feel a part of that park that as you say it's not somewhere that you know you walk past you look at it you think oh that's nice and you move on so how do you, how do you kind of create a park that people actually feel a part of and that kind of they feel reflects you know, them, their identity, their lifestyle, um, what, what, what they want to do. So, I mean, one of the things that we've been trying to think about, what we've, we've been doing on that is we're producing a, a strategy. It's called Parks and Recreation Strategy, trying to work on it um, with, with some of the local friends groups, for example, around the park, thinking about the way that the park might be managed. Um, part of the park will be in council ownership. So thinking about what is there going to be in the park that that you know that people can do. So are there going to be, for example, food growing areas that local people, whether you live in the development or outside the development, you know, can be, can be a part of? Um, are there going to be play facilities and things like that there that are that feel uh, kind of open and inclusive to everyone? Again, whether you live inside the development or outside, and it's not it's not always easy because in the you know in the past I think there has been a tendency often where people from outside kind of feel excluded so you go into a nice space and there's a security guard there looking at you for example and wondering what you're doing there so it's about you know a part some of which is going to be public some of which is going to be private but how do you make people feel kind of welcome in that space and feel like it's kind of uh, it's theirs
1: so my thing isn't what should I put there my thing is more of a how thing right so a lot of these new redevelopments have a lot of community spaces, and I respect that and I love that, and I've always loved that. But I think how that community space has been managed historically has not always been the best, and I think there's a significant area for improvement. But I also understand that comes from lack of money. And so, my suggestion is in these redevelopments, we rethink how we finance these community spots we th- rethink how we um, support them because there's one thing putting the building there but there's one thing putting the building there and also having year-on-year funding for its management um, and I don't just mean r- repairs I mean someone actually bringing, aff- affording someone from the local community to work there to bring the space to life and I think if we did that multiple times over you can almost create a community a centre network of hubs of services and I think that's actually quite innovative to deliver and quite practical to deliver all at the same time because now you both have the local impact of having one community center that's well run but you also have the federated impact of many community centers operating that's well run i don't think that's something the communities had the
2: privilege of experiencing before and i would love for them to feel it i think you're right and i think it's an area that's going to change uh, a lot over the, over the next few years, the way in which these spaces are managed and the way that the, the community can participate there. I th- again, I think we are, we are starting on that. So on the Old Kent Road, for example, we've opened a um, consult- consultation hub called um, 231 Old Kent Road. Um, the way that we decided to make that sustainable is that we've, we've got um, the Southern Young Advisors uh, who are going to manage the building for us. So they're going to manage both the kind of consultation and workshop areas downstairs. Uh, and they're going to have two floors above that in which they can help run, run programs, do training, kind of get entrepreneurial skills, uh, as kind of safe space, things like that. So that, I think that's an example of where, you know, we're starting to do that. So starting to get a community organization who's going to be then kind of part of that space and actually, actually managing that building. Um, and in doing so, they're going to be helping the council out as well, because they'll be managing the kind of, the space downstairs which is can be used for consultation, for events, that, that kind of thing. It's a way of kind of, I suppose, the council uh, being able to maintain some presence on the Old Kent Road, uh, so a place that we can show models or share plans and talk about things, but also getting the local community involved in actually managing that, that space.
3: Can I ask you a question Tim? Um, you've talked about the park and you've talked about um, the community involvement um, and the Southern Young Advisors. I think one of the key things just before we go is important to address the issue of gentrification. And in my understanding, one of one of the elements of, of, of privilege that ties in with gentrification, that I see is that I see that people who we would class as gentrified feel free to access any area in any community. So they'll go to the markets where I suppose people of black and minority ethnic backgrounds will um be selling, you know, our, our foods and our spices, and have a sense of community and, and conversation that happens, but. It doesn't happen in the reverse, so you won't very often see us in the costa. For example, you know, if you sit on Peckham High Street and see how many, just watch the human beings going by, you see a great mix, but obviously loads and loads of uh, people from ethnic minorities. But you go into that costa on the corner of Rye Lane and High Street, and it's like you've gone into another area, so you're like, outside the door, I'm seeing one community, and then you step inside, (laughs) and you are really seeing a very different demographic. And I think that... so. the real way and my and my understanding as well of 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 how how to manage you know planning affordable housing areas basically in development i'm sorry if i don't have the right key terms i don't i don't work it um in this arena but i think one of the things is managing the commercial aspects well to ask the people who already live here and this is the great thing about the old kent road yes you have got bq and you've got mega me- mega supermarkets but you've also got loads of tiny little shops that are mm. small and micro um level businesses by all sorts of different ethnic minorities. That means that the old Kent road is always still an accessible space to us. And it's an area that we feel we can take ownership of. And I think allowing that level of ownership to come from the people who already live in the existing area is the key to battling gentrification. And what I'm wondering is that although I've heard some of the lovely things that you're going to be doing on the old Kent road, are you gonna manage that commercialization so that as it develops and develops, we're still gonna have those lovely little cafes, you know, Lebanese cafes and, you know, African takeouts, or um, or is that gonna slowly, slowly start disappearing? Because if it it does, then the community is going to go
2: also. No, I mean, Roger, I mean, I really hope that those kinds of places, you know, are sustainable and can benefit as well from the change and kind of new people, you know, increased population uh, within the area. I mean, thinking about the commercial space, One of the things that we are trying to do, and it's not always easy, is ensure that that if there are kind of existing businesses who are based on a site, that they've got the opportunity to stay on the site or they can be relocated um, locally. And I think it, it, yeah, it goes back to Joel's point about, you know, if if you walk into a new development, it's not just about the park and, you know, the homes, but it's also about, as you say, the the, the businesses. So is there a kind of a local business, which is still there, for example, in the site, it's not just a, a new business, that, that's moved in from, from somewhere else in London. Uh, we, we have a requirement for affordable workspace uh, in Southwark now. So, you know, a certain proportion of the space has got to be uh, affordable. So where the, the rents are subsidised um, and it has to be that's targeted as where well, That kind of local businesses, you know, and particularly the, 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 the kind of smaller businesses, you know, it's not it's not always easy because there's a kind of whole other world there of kind of commercial You know property rights and legislation but it's something that we are trying to do um and it is an area again which 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 is developing
0: I feel like overall the encompassing thing for me in this whole like kind of affordable housing which I feel like affordable housing is really interesting because it it taps into so many other little things it's not just really affordable housing it's like it can't just be affordable housing it's like like you say gentrification and like work and education and i wouldn't raise my my child in the schools around here it's like a lot of things that are attached to it um and so i feel like i like this conversation because it was quite direct it was quite it was very much to the point like the and um team you gave us loads of uh things that are going on and i i, I i'm quite personal i'm like i like okay cool I'll see when I see, and then when I see it, I'm like, okay, cool, you, you, it's is exactly what it is. And so the fact that you're even having those things happening, it's, it is it is a positive, will have a positive change. And if it means that the um, council start enrolling that type of, of, of like uh, building out to uh, many things and start just realizing that going, doing that is the right thing, it's really good. I think the thing that they are like missing on is the kind of community connection type thing with people and going to the right people and speaking to all the types of people, like Akil was saying about the voices that aren't heard and stuff like that. Um, I think that's the one thing that they probably not as good at at the moment and so, hopefully things like this will get them to see this is what was a, a common conversation throughout so basically with all the podcasts so far there's been a lot of things like talk to the people ask the right people ask the people ask the people come into the people come into the people, and nothing that's the thing that once they get that that compound that they create then will actually be even more powerful and um
1: yeah i'm so, hopeful I'm hopeful for that too, because and I really, I really love the fact that that's a common theme between all of it, because it shows something in itself, right? Yeah. It shows that we've advanced to a stage in society where we have the processes. It's no longer about a technological advance to solve an issue. It's genuinely about who's in the room making the decisions around how the issue solved, and that that makes me very hopeful because that yeah. means the answers and the the right thing to do is not far away anymore. Right, exactly. The answers and the right thing to do aren't far away anymore. And if it's been said again, and again, and again, then people are making conscientious choices. That's not this, that that is a particular goes one way or not, and that we can interrogate. And it's, that's where the, my my understanding of the accountability for these things lives now, mm. because if we know these things and if it's been said again and again and again, why are we not doing it? And I think that's a very simple question. And it's a very itchy question that you can't run away from.
0: No, exactly. It's literally straightforward. And I think that the more, uh, when, and now that you start, and once you start doing something to do with like affordable housing or um, finding the right people to work on the things so that knocking on the doors is the right person that isn't going to say something funny. Um, once you start doing it and then you've done it, you can't really go back. So that's the side where in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm quite hopeful for stuff after because you're doing it already so obviously it's a bit weird for you to make all of these changes and then to be like now let's go back to the original format which didn't work anyway let's just use this format which seems to benefit all
1: and i think covid helps us with that because it's made us break away from uh, so many previous ways of doing things that we actually have to be different in this one. mm. Exactly. We have to be different And we might as well be different in the way we, what we're talking about Instead of being different in a way that's worse That's my opinion
0: No, um, um, I I'm, really enjoyed this chat with you guys today actually Because everybody was very frank And, <laughs> and to the points of all the parts of what they were speaking about Tim, you had loads of like stuff just to say Which was really cool And coming out with it And Raja, you're always really cool I feel like you just come and say stuff like in a really like you're like me but you've got better words <laughs> and akil you're like a dictionary of of just knowledge and just stuff and you you know everything that's going on which i love because it's like the grassroots ear to the ground you know what's going on you hear it and then you come up and you're like this is what the hell it is yeah so i'm i'm hoping you we see some more changes we've got more podcasts to do um uh yeah and i'm hoping that we start seeing more changes happen with summer council I feel like next year is going to be a year of like this type of vibe. Like just you have got, this is it now because in terms of like with um, social injustices and stuff like that, I just feel like everybody overall is bored of it. Yeah. They are tired of the, the, the state's quote. They're tired of just like having to scream things from it, like and having no one listen anymore. So I don't think that, the people that want to keep that voice silent have much power anymore. So it's kind of like people are now having to get information, like Beyonce said, or get out of the way, because it's like you have to start just letting people build for themselves and and, and assisting the people that you've not been helping You've been actually taken from for the longest time. So, let's see what the next subject is next time. See what we're going to talk about next, and see how shady we can get to the subject
1: council. No so, jokes. How, nah, how much we can. Nah, but, <laughs> but facts, right? As much as I know, this is made at making these topics accessible for the local mm. community and people out in the world, or whatever. What I'm trying to say is, let's not be blind to it this time, like we have been all the other times. And I'm trying to say that on the record, out loud, on this rec- on this recording, so that no one can say we didn't know, like every person who carries a senior position in suburb council needs to listen to this this series Mm. i want it almost mandated and i know it's not possible but i'm saying it on record because i feel like if they don't listen what's the point it's not even a what's the point as i said it's just now you've got time to change and i don't want to see you fail in your career so just listen and Mm. i think it's now that deep and i think that's I, i i think When we say these things, we always sound so altruistic. And it's nice to sound so altruistic of do this for the people because it's the right thing to do. And so I believe a lot of these behaviors that we've discussed today have to be incentivized meaningfully with the council to turn around and say, if you don't do this, you don't progress. You don't get the raise. You don't do these things. And from the craziness sub council, sub councillors in sub council have done, I also feel like there needs to be more of a accountability system to make sure that these people don't go derailing public affairs for their own benefit mm. um, because i feel like that's a huge risk being in such positions of power
0: well let's see what council council's gonna do and on that note i'm gonna say goodbye i hope to chat with you all again thank you for coming guys it was lovely enjoy the rest of your week and hopefully a bit of sun comes out and doesn't say this great and have a great day bye